welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast, which helps you navigate this fast-changing world by bringing you ideas, information, interviews, and insights for being fit for the future. Here's your host, Gihan Pereira. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast episode. As I'm recording this, we're still in summer in Australia. It's nice and warm here in Perth, and we're going through a little bit of a warm spell at the moment. Uh, in Australia in general, we've just started our vaccination rollout, which is going to be probably the biggest public health initiative that we've ever been through uh, as a country. And over the last year, Australia has done really well in managing the pandemic. And uh, I feel very lucky that I'm living here in a country where, where our government at a national level has taken some really strong measures to make sure that we're protecting the country and protecting Australians in Australia. And vaccines, of course, are a really important part of that. And and will help us return to some kind of normal life sooner rather than later. So today I want to talk about a topic that's a really big topic in business, and it wouldn't be exaggerating it too much to say that it's the the biggest topic that many Australian businesses and business leaders worldwide are thinking about and have been thinking about for the last few years. In fact, there's some research that backs it up. So KPMG, for the last few years, has run a survey at the start of the year, and they've published this report, which they call Keeping Us Up at Night. And it's a survey of Australian business leaders and asking them what are their biggest challenges and issues. In other words, what's keeping them up at night? And for the three years leading up to the pandemic, so that's 2018, 2019, and the start of 2020, the same topic ranked number one for all of those three years. And that was digital transformation. And then, of course, we had a global pandemic, but even that didn't slow down this trend. If anything, it's the opposite. So many leaders say that the pandemic, COVID-19, has accelerated their digital transformation program by as much as five to six years. So they're already five to six years ahead of schedule. So that's good news, but there's some bad news as well. McKinsey says that two-thirds of 70% of people and businesses that go through a digital transformation program fail. So it's by far the majority of organizations fail when they try to do digital transformation. And there's some reasons for that, which I'll go into today. And there's some key mistakes that people make when it comes to digital transformation. Now, I should say upfront that I'm definitely not an anti-digital person. In fact, quite the opposite. So digital and technology have been a big part of my life from the time I was very young. So uh, we didn't have computers in school, in primary school, but we did have them in high school. And uh, because of my background in I liked computers, I liked maths, I liked science. So I would always be jumping on the computers at that time. I got my university degree in computer science and mathematics from the University of Western Australia using one of the very first Apple Macintosh computers way back in the early days of Apple and Apple Macs. I worked as a software developer here in Australia and in the UK. Then I left and started my own business, which was a web design business. And even now as a futurist, some of what I talk about is technology and digital technology. But I'm not obsessed by digital just for the sake of it. And I think that's one of the problems when people are looking at digital transformation is that they focus too much on the digital. And it shouldn't be about that. It should be about people. So I reckon you should be cautious with your, with your digital journey. I'm, I'm definitely all for it, but only where it serves your purpose. And your purpose should be to serve people better. So being more digital will 
definitely help in a number of areas, but don't let it become the driving force. Don't let it blind you to this goal of serving people better. So let me give you an analogy. So if you cared about climate change, and you should, you might choose an electric car instead of a petrol car, and that's good. But if you obsess about, let's call it electric transformation, instead of thinking about sustainability, then you might be misguided and choose an electric bicycle over a pedal bicycle. And of course, that's not so good. So if I give you that analogy, it seems obvious. And yet a lot of people are doing digital just for digital's sake. Don't do it for that reason. Do it to better serve your customers, clients, employees, suppliers, investors, other stakeholders. So Unless you're the CIO of your organization or part of her team, don't obsess about SAP and zero trust security and blockchain and open APIs and legacy architecture, technology stacks. All of that stuff's important, but not for most people, not for most leaders. So instead, in your digital transformation process, start with people. So determine what they need and find ways to help them. And you will discover that there are many digital opportunities along the way that will help them better, but treat digital as a way for you to build up some tools and resources is not your ultimate goal. So today, I'm not going to tell you everything you need to know about digital transformation. It's a big topic, but I want to give you an overview so that you can have a framework when you're thinking about your digital transformation program. So broadly, I want to talk about three things. First of all, demand. So you Um, We're going to understand the three significant ways that the world is now more digital and also, by the way, three ways that it isn't. And what does that mean for you, your customers, your employees and other people? In other words, this is our digital world that we're now operating in. The second area I'm calling enabled. So you should know the four levels of digital technology that you can enable within your organization and understand how they can help you create new solutions for your team and your organization. And the third one is bringing those two things together. So it's about the journeys. So it's about planning how you will engage your people to take them on this journey. And let's be clear, it's not an easy journey. It's a, it is a challenging journey, but it's one that many organizations are taking now. So let's have a look, first of all, at digital demand. About 10 years ago, in fact, almost exactly 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Fast, Flat and Free. And it was for small business owners to help them understand and leverage the online world for their offline business. Because this was really written for traditional businesses, that they weren't necessarily online businesses, but there's a lot they could do in the online world. Now, that book's out of print because I was talking about technology that is now obsolete. But those principles of fast, flat and free are just as relevant now a decade later. So in brief, this is what fast, flat and free means. So first, digital technology has made our world faster because we're working with bits rather than atoms. The internet and technology have made our world flatter because we break down barriers and dismantle hierarchies and topple icons. And bits rather than atoms are free or almost free. So what used to cost a lot now costs much less or sometimes is free and that creates new business opportunities. So let's look at fast, flat and free because that's what the world is looking for. So fast first. Let's talk about QR codes because they've become really popular now and they've become mainstream as a result of the pandemic. In fact, they were invented in the 1990s, in 1994, and in Asia, they have been popular for a long time. But as I said, they became mainstream in Australia because of the pandemic, because we've been using them to to facilitate contact tracing, because 
And we know this around Australia now with concerns about coronavirus spreading in the community. If you go into a cafe, a restaurant, a pub, other venues, then if you're a customer there, you have to register on entry. And venues have to provide a way for you to register. And they do it in two ways. You could either write it down, write down your contact details by hand with pen and paper, or you could scan a QR code with a smartphone app. And obviously the QR code is much faster. So what QR codes do is they connect the physical world with the digital world and they make our world faster in many ways. So with contact tracing, it's faster than writing by hand. With business cards and you see business cards with QR codes, it immediately transfers contact details to a database. In fact, I've had a QR code on my business cards for a long time, for about seven or eight, maybe even nine or 10 years. But I stopped using them because people didn't know what they were. Now I'm putting them back because now people understand what they are. And they use in other places as well. I went to a restaurant the other day where uh, there's a QR code on the table and I can scan the QR code at the table and we can submit our order from our table without the waiter having to come over and take our order by hand. So QR codes are just one example of how the world has become faster because of digital. But there are many other ways that digital has made our world faster. Let me give you a few of them. So computing power is the obvious one. So computers are much faster than humans for doing computation. That's what they do. For example, there's now a robot that can solve a Rubik's Cube. It's, it's a Rubik's Cube that's scrambled up anyway. A robot can solve that so quickly that if you have a video of it, you have to slow it down so that humans can see it in action. Otherwise, it's just too fast for our eyes to watch the, all the moves it's making. So that's one thing, computing power. Another one is instant access. So information is literally at our fingertips and we get access to it instantly. So in addition to instant access, we also have 24-7 access. So we expect to always have access to information, not just during whatever we call opening hours. We've also got faster processes. See, when you've got a process that's not completely digital, in other words, it involves people or physical things, then there are delays at each step and those delays just happen. They, they're built in because we're working with atoms rather than bits. You also get reliable results with digital. So if you've got a well-designed digital process, then you get perfect results every time because there's no chance for human error, there are no broken pieces, there are no shipping delays, and things like that, which you get in physical processes, you don't get with digital. And the last one of many is that you get a customer focus. So digital technology, when it's used well, serves the customer rather than the provider. So I can talk to my little Google Home device and go, hey Google, what's my bank balance? And the digital technology behind that understands and interprets that. If I ring up my bank, you know what you get. Press one to open an account, two to report a lost credit card, three to blah, blah, blah. Your call is important to us. Even that is somewhat digital, but is not as easy as asking Google or Siri for an answer and having digital technology back that up. Now, of course, with those examples that I've given you, it's easy to find counterexamples for each of these scenarios. And sometimes a digital solution gives you an inferior and a slower solution. But don't let that distract you. Our world is faster and it's only going to keep getting faster. Let's look at flat. Let me tell you about Dr. Nikki Stamp. She's not only one of Australia's leading cardiothoracic surgeons, but she's also a lecturer, a health advocate, an author, a speaker. She's a mentor to women in medicine. And she has two parts to her personal brand. She, she has one which is a carefully cultivated professional brand. And uh, it's great. 
and is really perfect for mainstream media. And she often appears on TV, on radio, in publications as a credible expert in her field, which she is. But she also has this casual and irreverent side to her. And that appears on Instagram, Twitter, and the thing that I like best, her podcast called In Bad Taste. And these online platforms let her reach her market directly without having to rely on anybody's approval. And that's what I mean by flat. This is exactly what happens in our flat world where we don't have hierarchies, gatekeepers, layers of management and other barriers between you and your team, your customers and the rest of the world. And your customers don't have those barriers to reach you and your team as well. So the online world has shown people what's possible and it set their expectations for how you engage with them in a flatter way. And let me give you some examples of flatter because we do see a flat in our world in many different places. For example, review sites. So you know that customers use public forums like TripAdvisor, restaurant review sites to comment, to complain, to compliment venues. And the purpose of that is to help other customers, not necessarily to help the venue. And employees use this as well. They use sites like Glassdoor to do the same for rating uh, employers for the benefit of other employees and potential employees. Another thing that happens in a flat world is you can pool resources so people can connect not just with businesses, but they can connect with each other to arrange things like loans and insurance and other services. This is another thing called matching wants. So you've got online platforms like Airbnb, which don't own any real estate, But if you've got somebody with a spare room at some time, they can connect with somebody else who wants a spare room at that same time. Another thing that you get in a flat world is this idea of bypassing hierarchy. So fans can now talk directly with athletes. Shareholders can connect directly with the CEO. And even junior employees can pitch ideas to senior management. And you can also bypass intermediaries so people can deal directly with other people without being forced to go through agents, brokers and other people who are intermediaries and kind of get in the way. And they're there to protect and they're there to filter, but sometimes they get in the way. Just keep in mind that established organizations, and if you work for one or you lead one, you might have spent years and sometimes decades building these layers of hierarchy so you don't have this flat structure. And they often don't recognize just how flat our world has become. And if you're in that situation, just be careful because you're vulnerable to what competitors can do because they can be flat when you choose not to be. So we talked about fast and flat. Let's talk about free. I remember when we first moved to Australia in the 1970s, we used to keep in touch with our rallies in Sri Lanka, our relatives in Sri Lanka, with the occasional long-distance phone call. And phone calls at the time were expensive, international phone calls. So we all lined up by the phone, spoke very quickly for just a few minutes, and then quickly passed over the phone to the next in line. And it it was a real event. Now contrast that with 40 years later, which was a few years ago, when my partner Nikki and I, we went on a cruise to the South Pacific. And Nikki called her teenage son Josh, who was at his grandparents' farm in Australia, and she was using Facebook Messenger, and she had a crystal clear video call for the relatively low cost of just the Wi-Fi access on the ship. And I was really struck by the contrast between this and my own experience as a child. But the other thing that occurred to me 
was that for Josh, as a digital native, this was something he took for granted. He never knew that the world could be any different. And that's the third part of Fast, Flat and Free, that digital is so much cheaper and sometimes it's free. Or if it's not free, it has such a small marginal cost, it might as well be free. And that changes customers' expectations. So in a few ways. So one of them, and the most obvious one, is because digital products cost much less to produce, and I'm talking about orders of magnitude less, not just a few percentage points, they can be priced much lower than physical products, and they still have generous margins. So, you know, email marketing can reach thousands for a fraction of the cost of print mail. A Zoom brings people together from anywhere in the world with no travel costs. And if you remember the original iTunes, let users download songs for about a dollar each. The other thing that digital does is it enables low price subscription business models where customers pay a low monthly rental fee rather than an upfront price for ownership. So we've gone from ownership to rental. Think about what Apple did. Apple killed CD sales by making music cheaper, but Spotify transformed their business model with a monthly subscription to all the music in the world, which you don't own, but you can rent. The next level is freemium. So this is a situation where the, the product remains free to most of the users, except for a few who pay for a premium upgrade. And this is called freemium. And the way this works and the way this can work is because it costs almost nothing and maybe nothing to deliver their product. So the company can afford to offer it free to say 90% of their customers, knowing that the 10% who pay the fee make the service profitable and sustainable. And the last one is if you take it to the next level is you've got services like Facebook and Google, which make their products entirely free to everybody. And in return, you give them your attention and your data, which they then sell to advertisers. So you've got multiple business models when you've got the value of fast, flat and free. So before we leave this area of what our digital world looks like, what digital demand is, let me just make the point that not everything has to be fast, flat and free. It could be the opposite of that, which is slow, bumpy or expensive. For example, when the pandemic pretty much shut down international travel and it really devastated the airline industry, Singapore Airlines, like most other airlines, had to ground most of its fleet. And so they had to look for other ways to generate revenues. And one of the ideas they had was that they offered a first-class dining experience at home. So they wanted to offer their, the people who would normally be first-class frequent flyers with Singapore Airlines, they wanted to give them first-class experiences. So what they did was for $900, you could have a chef come to your house and cook a meal for you and your partner. It's served on beautiful Wedgwood China, which you get to keep afterwards. And it comes complete with fine wines and Dom Perignon champagne. I just want to give you this example because we've got this digital world where everything's moving to fast, flat and free. And Singapore Airlines offered a premium non-digital experience that was exactly the opposite. They know that not everything needs to be fast, flat and free. There's nothing wrong with being the opposite of that, which is slow bumpy or expensive, as long as you do it intentionally and you do it so it enhances and adds to the experience. So if you buy this $900 Singapore Airlines package and your neighbor orders Uber Eats, you're both getting fed, but you're buying very different experiences. So don't assume that everybody wants everything to be fast, flat and free. If you provide the right experience, people pay a premium for slow, bumpy or expensive. Let's look at slow, for example. 
Digital technology, as I've already said, enables a faster world, but some people crave slow experiences to escape that world. Uh, When my dad travelled from Sri Lanka to England to study accounting in the 1950s, he took a slow three-month journey by ship because air travel was too expensive. That's not the case anymore. Air travel's much cheaper, so people don't use ships to travel from A to B, but they do book cruises, which are deliberately slow experiences. I said that digital flattens hierarchies and removes barriers, but some people prefer to pay for a more bumpy experience. So they might use intermediaries like financial advisors instead of investing directly. Uh, They might join a tour group rather than exploring independently. They might prefer a hotel room that offers room service rather than a big Airbnb property that only gives them a kitchen where they have to do their own cooking. So that's slow and bumpy, but expensive as well. So even though digital makes things cheaper, some non-digital experiences are worth the expense. So we like going to outdoor cinemas in summer when we could just sit at home and watch a movie on Netflix. We can go to a live sporting event that you could watch on TV. Or you buy and pay a lot of money for a prestige car to show off your status. So that's the first area, and the first area is about the digital demand. This is what our digital world looks like and what customers, clients, employees expect from us. Now let's look at the other side. So what about us and our business, our organization? Let's look at how what it means to be digital enabled. So we're going from the outside to the inside. And I'm going to talk about four things here because digital technology operates at four different levels. In summary, we have bits where we're talking about rather than physical atoms, we've got digital bits, which are faster, smaller, easier to move and easier to copy. The second one is cloud. When you store those bits online and selectively give access to other people, you multiply the power of the bits. The next one is artificial intelligence. So this goes to another level when you give AI access to those shared bits. And the last one is your platform, where a digital organization can change its uh, entire business model to become a platform. Not many do that, but I'll give you a little glimpse of that. So let's start off, first of all, by talking about bits. Bits and pieces, in fact. We all know Amazon.com. And when Jeff Bezos founded it in the mid-1990s, it was purely an online bookshop, and they were selling books by mail order. Now, 10 years later, it had expanded into other products, but books were still a pretty big part of their revenue. But Bezos recognized the potential advantage of digital books, ebooks. And he put together a team to create an ebook reader, and he supposedly told them proceed as if your goal is to put everyone selling physical books out of a job, which, by the way, included Amazon as well. And three years later, Amazon launched the first Kindle and it started the ebook revolution. Now, it's very difficult to find out how many ebooks are sold at the moment because the publishing industry is a bit fragmented and a, a little bit protective. But as one measure of ebook success, a couple of years ago in 2019, Amazon paid Kindle authors over 300 million US dollars in royalty payments for their books. That's just one example of how ebooks have really become mainstream now. But just realize that switching from physical books to digital books is more than just an incremental change. The digital version, it's not just a cheaper version that you get immediately. It's a completely different product. It can be shared across multiple devices. It can be configured to be read in different ways with different font sizes and different light or dark according to your preferences. And you can carry your entire library on a device that's lighter than a single paperback novel. 
And this is not just about books. It happens whenever you switch from physical, which is made of atoms and pieces, to digital, which is made of bits. This is not a small step. This is a quantum leap. And a quantum leap, by the way, contrary to what people often say, it's not a big change. It's just an instant change from one level to another. So they're two very different things. And so I'm going to talk soon about the potential power of sharing digital assets. But even before we get to sharing, just going digital has other benefits over physical. A digital document weighs nothing and takes up virtually no space. So think about a Word document contrasted with a paper file. Uh, digital things can be searched instantly. So most ebooks now don't even have an index at the back because it's completely unnecessary. Uh, digital things can be duplicated to create a perfect copy. They can be edited and those edits can be tracked and undone at any time. There's a great book called The Inevitable by Kevin Kelly, and he talks about 12 trends that he predicts will inevitably become mainstream soon. And most of them rely on digital technology. And uh, even if you haven't read the book, you can probably guess what they are, because this is what our future is going to be. It's going to start off with digital. So examine everything that's in your organization that's made of atoms. So the paper, the office buildings, the desks, the stock, parking bays, everything. And imagine if they didn't exist. Then think about the function they serve or the problem they solve and imagine doing that digitally instead. Now you might go digital parking base, what does that mean? No, you don't have that, but if you have a team working from home and collaborating using digital tools, then you don't need parking base, just as one example. The next stage is where you go from bits to cloud. Emma who's now my executive assistant, when I first interviewed her for the role, she told me that she didn't know how to use Microsoft Word or Microsoft Excel. And uh, that took me back. I was surprised. That seemed like something that would be a major limitation for somebody who'd be doing a lot of admin work in that role. But then she told me that she would use Google's equivalent software, so Google Docs and Google Sheets. Fantastic. That reassured me. In fact, it pleased me because she understood the power of cloud-based tools. So you've got automatically shared documents, you've got secure access, you've got uh, online revision history, um, it's easy to selectively give access to other people, and so on. And I'd rather have somebody who understood that than somebody who was familiar with the older digital tools and then had to learn the value of being cloud-based. So briefly, if you don't know what that means, in the cloud or cloud-based means that your data are stored on the internet rather than only on your own devices, your laptop, your phone, or your tablet. Now, being digital alone doesn't automatically mean cloud-based, but if you take that extra step, then it gives you some significant advantages. So you can think of the cloud as digital and shared. So you get all the advantages of digital bits, as I've just explained, but you can also share those bits and that gives you more power. At the simplest level, Sharing means that you keep your data private, but you can access it from any device. For example, using Gmail, uh, Apple's iCloud or Dropbox. They're all examples of where things are in the cloud and they're shared and accessible. They're accessible only to you, but they're accessible on any device and from anywhere. They're stored securely. They're backed up automatically. And even this basic level of sharing has advantages to just keeping your data on a single device. But it goes further because you can also amplify the value of the data by selectively granting access to other people, the team members, suppliers, customers, people working from home or away from the office, freelancers, investors. They each use the data as required from their own preferred device 
anytime and from anywhere, and they can apply their unique expertise to it if they want to edit it. Now, the next level, you go one step further and throw open the doors for anybody to use your data. But again, in a specific way, they use standard rules of access known as an API, an application programming interface. For example, in Australia, we've had legislation in the last couple of years that has created open banking. So the idea behind that is that banks must allow their customers to share their banking data with other service providers if they want to. Now that opens a floodgate to a whole new range of businesses who provide new services to those customers because they have access to those customers' bank, bank accounts, transactions, uh, spending history, buying history, wages. And if you choose to give somebody else access to it, they can, uh, they can use that data in interesting ways that are useful to you. Next, we go from cloud to AI, because a natural extension to having this open cloud with an API is access from artificial intelligence software, because that needs large amounts of data to grow and thrive. There are many stories about AI. Here's one that's recent that I really like and I share often. So at the height of the pandemic in 2020, Oracle and Workplace Intelligence did a survey where they, they asked 12,000 employees around the world about their mental health. And not surprisingly, Three quarters of them rated 2020 their most stressful year ever. But you might be interested to learn how they were thinking about managing their stress and anxiety. Two thirds of them said they would rather talk to AI, artificial intelligence software, than to their manager. And 80% of them would even consider using AI as a counsellor. Now, I've shared this report in various places, and there was a predictable backlash when I shared it, when others have shared it, from mental health professionals, uh, because some of them couldn't believe that robots could match their decades of experience, expertise, and human connection. But it's not just an either-or situation. AI doesn't replace their jobs. It simplifies it, it complements it, and it enhances it. So if you think about putting your data in the cloud as amplifying its power, opening it to AI, turbocharges it. Um, as far as AI is concerned, the more data, the better. It doesn't just feed on data, it gorges it like a glutton rather than a gourmand. I remember when I was studying AI in my computer science degree in the 1990s, it was slow and expensive and it took huge amounts of computing power for even simple applications of AI. That's no longer the case. It still needs fast computers, but they're dirt cheap now. You've got one on your desktop. You've got one in your mobile phone. And large tech companies sometimes make their AI software available to anybody for a low monthly fee. For example, IBM has a very famous uh, AI machine called Watson. It rose to fame for beating a human at the US game show Jeopardy, and it's accessible to you right now. It's free for the basic version and only 120 US dollars a month for an upgrade. Amazon has made their AI, their recommendation service, you know, the thing that says customers like you also bought X, that's also available to any business. It's called AWS Personalize. And Google's AI platform is also available for a monthly fee. So think about how you can use AI. Hollywood thinks of AI and portrays AI as an omniscient, omnipotent monster played by Arnold Schwarzenegger. But that's not reality. 
Use AI as your servant, not your master. Its biggest benefit right now is to enhance rather than replace, and it works best with your people in many ways. Let me quickly give you 10 ways that AI and people can work together in the workplace. These are not the only 10, and they're not in any particular order, but I just want to give you examples of what AI is already doing in workplaces. Number one. AI chatbots answer questions instantly in sales, in customer service, and internal support. Two, AI helps recruiters and HR professionals find suitable candidates and identify potential people problems before they occur. Number three, AI manages repetitive tasks like scheduling meetings and answering common questions. You can get an AI personal assistant. Number four, AI and uh, internet-connected devices, this thing called IoT, the Internet of Things, they monitor workplaces to create safer and more effective work environments. Five, AI handles complex and repetitive tasks such as reading and interpreting contracts. AI is getting pretty good at understanding written language. Six, AI records meetings and transcribes conversations so you can simplify search and retrieval later. Seven, AI monitors physical assets and inventory levels to help manage maintenance, stock, and workloads. Eight, AI analyzes user sentiment on social media. In other words, it it interprets what's written on social media and tries to understand emotion and tone. Nine, AI listens to sales calls and offers coaching tips to salespeople to improve their future calls or suggests to the manager that this salesperson could do with a little bit of personal coaching. And 10, AI integrates with online learning tools to give employees a customized learning journey to improve their learning. So these are just 10 examples of how AI is already working in organizations to work together with people to help solve customer problems. So whatever your organization, AI should definitely be part of your strategy. So let's look at this fourth area, which is a platform. One of the best examples is Apple. Apple's one of the world's biggest companies, and it generates most of its revenue from selling products. But in 2020, it made an estimated 64 billion, billion with a B, uh, US dollars uh, revenue from sales of apps in its app store. That's pretty big and not too shabby. It's interesting and perhaps a bit ironic that Steve Jobs, even though he was a brilliant marketer, he was really strongly opposed to an app store on the first iPhone. Anytime it came up, he quashed the discussion about it, according to one Apple board member, quashed the discussion. But he finally came around and Apple launched it. And of course, with the famous tagline, there's an app for that. And the rest is history. Now, the app store succeeds because it's not a product. It's a platform for other people to create products. So Apple's developers are among the best in the world, but they're nowhere near as good as the collective brain power of every other developer in the world. And a platform gives those developers the power to create and sell their products to Apple customers, and Apple takes a pretty significant cut of every sale. Now, platforms don't have to be digital. For example, a pub that invites local bands to perform gives them a platform. Or an industry trade show or an expo that charges exhibitors to showcase their business provides a platform to those businesses. But digital platforms create bigger opportunities for the reasons that I've already described. In particular, they're fast, flat and free. Now, I should say that not many businesses or organizations create a platform. And that's because creating a platform is not easy. In a way, it's a completely different business model. You've got a different customer focus because your customers are no longer the people buying your products. They're the people who are developing products for the platform. 
you've got a completely different mindset. You were protecting your market share, but now you're helping competitors build their market share. It's a different skill set. You're essentially turning into a tech company. It's a different revenue model. You're going from direct product sales to taking commissions on other people's sales, and maybe even a completely different internal structure in your organizations. And that's why few organizations completely transform into platforms, not even Apple. As I said, it's still primarily a hardware company. But think about whether you, like Apple, can take one product and turn it into a platform. If you do this, and if you do this experiment, when you're looking for candidate products, it's tempting to look for the ones that aren't doing very well. That the flagging products that you're willing to sacrifice because they're not going well as a product, maybe we should turn that into a platform. But that's the wrong approach. Your platform needs to attract the users and developers to build on it, so that they can sell their products on it. And those people want the same thing that you do from their products. They want customers, solid revenue, and good long-term prospects. And the best platforms cannibalize successful product lines. In other words, you take one of your best-performing products and you basically destroy it so you can build a platform. So yes, that takes some courage, and that's why not many people do it. So. Let's look at the third area of this digital transformation program. We've spoken about the demand, the fast, flat, and free world. We've spoken about how you can be digital enabled. Now let's talk about the journey because you don't just snap your fingers and suddenly become the digital enabled organization. Let's talk about computer keyboards. In the mid 19th century, a printer named Christopher Scholes he invented a machine which he called a typewriter. And he arranged the keyboard, not alphabetically, but in this layout that we now know, which is the QWERTY layout. And he did that to minimize the risk of keys getting stuck when typists work really quickly. Think about now, 250 years later, there are better layouts and they, we don't have this jamming problem on our devices. It takes only a few minutes to switch your phone or your other devices to a better layout. In fact, there are some that have been proven to be better and more efficient, such as the Voja uh, keyboard, but we don't make that switch. Why not? Even though it's better, because change is hard. And when you're talking about transformation, it's even harder. It's almost always about the people, not the technology. So let's talk about how to bring your people along on the change journey. This is not a big discussion about change and uh, process transformation, but I'm going to share with you a few ideas to bring people along on the digital transformation journey. And if you ever feel frustrated with others who are making slow progress, ask yourself, why haven't you changed your keyboard to one that's better? So let's start with something that a lot of people do, which is make assumptions. Let's go back almost 100 years. In 1925, an astronomer and astrophysicist, Cecilia Payne Gaposchkin, was the first person to suggest that stars were mostly composed of hydrogen and helium. She was right. But another astronomer at the time, Henry Norris Russell, when he was reviewing her PhD dissertation, he challenged that conclusion that the sun was mostly hydrogen because it contradicted the consensus opinion at the time that the Earth and the Sun had a similar composition. So she respected his opinion and she downgraded her conclusion in her PhD. And she didn't receive credit for her finding until some time later. In fact, it was Russell himself who later realized and acknowledged his mistakes through some of his own experiments. 
And it's a pity that uh, Payne Kaposhkin didn't get full credit for it. Another astronomer, Otto Struve, later described her thesis as the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. But it was diluted because of an assumption that was made at the time. Now, we all use experience to guide us to make decisions, and good decision-making leads to good judgment, and that in turn builds wisdom. But that only works, that process only works, if your experience from the past is still relevant for the future. If the world has changed, then those experiences, decisions, judgment and wisdom lead to incorrect assumptions that lead you astray in the present. And this is especially important in transformation. When you're trying to transform, not just respond to change, it's even less likely that your past experience will be the most important factor for future decisions. So don't assume. Don't assume you know the right technology to make you digital. Don't assume you know the best people to lead the transformation. Don't assume all your older team members are going to be reluctant to change. Don't assume that all your younger team members are really digital savvy and eager to change. Don't assume that you know how best to manage the transformation process. Don't assume your highly paid consultants know best how to manage it. Just don't assume. Question your assumptions. It's difficult to question your experience, especially if it served you well in the past, but think like a beginner because you really need to be willing to question your assumptions and be willing to let go if you want this transformation process to succeed. The next thing you do is think carefully about what you measure and you should change what you measure. We all know about Google, but Google's parent company, Alphabet, has a, has a division which they call the Moonshot Factory. It's called X. And what they do is they launch audacious and ambitious projects to change the world. So they did some of the early work on self-driving cars. They built smart contact lenses. They built a thing called Google Glass. And what they do to encourage their employees to aim big is they allow, embrace and even reward failure. That might seem counterintuitive to celebrate failure when you're trying to aim for success, but the head of X, his name's Astro Teller, said it's the best way to encourage big thinking. So he doesn't tolerate leaders who always fail, but he doesn't always expect them to succeed either. So at X, 50% failure rate is considered a success. So in the same way, be careful what you measure, especially when you're going through a significant change process like digital transformation. Now, typically, a good consultant might advise you to measure digital KPIs, such as the number of users using some new software or the, the new revenue that's attributed to, to your digital changes and maybe even operational improvements as a result of digital. A better consultant will focus on the outcome of digital changes, such as customer ratings and productivity improvements and employee engagement. Of course, they're better because they focus on the people rather than the technology. But I think even these measurements aren't ideal when you're going on the journey, especially when you're starting the journey. Transformation takes time. And in the early stages, don't be too eager to measure the outcomes. Instead, focus on and measure your progress. For example, how many new projects have you started? How many projects have failed? How fast did they fail? How many ideas has your team generated? How many of these ideas have you implemented? How often do the younger and more junior people speak up at work? How often do the more senior people share their wisdom with the team? How many old assets and resources have you thrown away? Now, these measurements don't directly relate to outcomes, but they're more important along the journey. Let's talk about slow, bumpy and expensive again. 
because we talked about this earlier, but I think it's worth considering the other side of slow, bumpy and expensive. I'll explain what I mean. When my bank added some new features to its credit card merchant system, I got in touch with them to upgrade to the new system because it would help me take online orders better. But the upgrade process was so difficult. They, they were forcing me to reapply for the merchant account that I'd been using for 20 years, do a whole bunch of paperwork, give them bank statements and tax returns and so on. And I just gave up and I looked for alternatives and I found Square. And they gave me a merchant account overnight with competitive fees and for just the cost of a $50 credit card reader that I bought from Officeworks. The next day it was set up. You've probably seen those little white square credit card readers in cafes, restaurants and other businesses. So we talked earlier about the idea of slow, bumpy and expensive being an advantage as long as you do it deliberately and intentionally to enhance your customer experience. But the dark side of that is it becomes a problem when it detracts from that experience. And that often occurs mostly unintentionally when you're using non-digital operations and processes. So as a first pass to find potential digital initiatives to tackle as part of your transformation process, have a look at your systems and processes and find whatever's slow, bumpy or expensive. So when you're looking for slow things that could be faster, look for processes that have become bloated over time, look for inefficiencies in your supply chain, look for delays in engaging with customers, and then think about how you can use digital technology to make those faster. For example, with you know, online booking forms, a mobile app, robotic process automation, thing called RPA for to manage your repetitive tasks. Then looking at bumpy. So if you're looking for bumpy things that you could flatten, look for ways to remove barriers and obstacles. So help customers reach you faster, let them connect with each other, remove or minimize the use of intermediaries and learn from what people are doing in other businesses and even other industries. For expensive things that you could make cheaper or even free, look first for the, for the obvious gains from going digital. For example, less paper. Then look for other initiatives that could save money through automation, through AI, through increased connectivity. For example, you could even put a simple chatbot on your website and that could answer up to 80% of queries instantly. So when you identify slow, bumpy or expensive processes, of course, you don't have to limit your thinking to digital solutions. Sometimes non-digital solutions can also lead to big gains because you could just take away unnecessary steps from old inefficient processes. So don't only think about digital solutions, but do think about ways to be less slow, less bumpy and less expensive. In other words, faster, flatter and freer. The last thing I want to say about this whole digital transformation journey is that sometimes you need to throw things away. In an innovation workshop that I was running for leaders a couple of years ago, one of the participants was a leader at a university. She, she worked for the university's Student Experience Centre because universities are doing everything they can to create great experiences for students because it's a very competitive sector, especially for international students. And this leader was sharing some of the things that they were doing uh, to improve the student experience. Things like more parking, increased security for women who are at night on campus, a wider range of eating outlets, most social activities. And as she spoke, it struck me that they all addressed the campus experience, not the wider student experience. And this is not surprising. The university's focus is on its campus because it has a campus. It's a large, valuable, expensive campus that is one of the university's biggest assets. But that campus 
also constrains its thinking. So contrast that with online course providers like Coursera, for example, which then they offer university level education without a physical campus. And they use that to their advantage. They attract more students from more countries. They conduct online assessments. They leverage peer support. They even facilitate local meetups for students living in the same town. And it's difficult for a university with a campus to transform into a purely online university without a campus. But that's not what I'm saying. You don't need to go that far. If all they did was start any change initiative with the hypothetical question, what if we didn't have a campus? They would immediately generate a richer collection of ideas. And the same thing applies to you, especially with digital transformation. Now, by all means, enhance your existing assets with digital initiatives, but recognize that what you're doing is that's a good start, but it's not a transformation. And sometimes you need to throw away, you need to discard valuable assets to make real progress. For example, when banks gave customers the choice to replace paper statements with online statements, great. It helped everybody, but you couldn't really call it a transformation. It's nothing like the digital bank UP, UP in Australia, which is backed by Bendigo Bank, and they provide app-based access to transactions. But, it's, but there's much more you can do with your transaction list on an app than just getting a PDF copy of your statement. And similarly, if you're a real estate agent who includes a QR code on each for sale sign, and that takes people to a link of a, for a virtual tour of the property, that's good. It's enhancing your service, but it's not really transforming it. So just to be clear, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with digital initiatives that change, improve, enhance and simplify your operations, but don't be too consumed by that approach alone. As with the university, take the time to regularly pose the question, what if we didn't have, whatever, statements or signs and office brochures, these physical assets, what would we do differently? So we've come to the end of my overview of digital transformation. As I said, it's a really big topic, but I hope I've given you enough big picture thinking in, around this now for you to approach your digital transformation in a different way. Let me finish with a quotation from George Westerman from MIT. And he says, when digital transformation is done right, it's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. But when done wrong, all you have is a really fast caterpillar. And I would hate for you to spend a lot of time, money, energy and resources into doing a massive digital transformation process and just end up with a really fast caterpillar. Do it right and then you create a great butterfly. I hope you find that quick overview of digital transformation useful. If you'd like my help, I can help you with your digital transformation program. Uh, just to be clear, my expertise is not about rolling up my sleeves and getting in and doing some of the digital transformation for you. There are organizations who are very good at that. And if you need any help with that, I can certainly recommend someone. But I do. I do speak at conferences about this topic, about digital and artificial intelligence and help you people understand how they can work well with technology, how it can work together. And I do run a master class for leaders around digital transformation. So if you're interested in that, please get in touch and let's talk about how we can make that work well for you in your team and in your organization. I hope you enjoyed that and found something valuable for your personal and your professional life. And if you did get some value from it, please share the love by reviewing and rating it in the place that you get your podcasts. That really does help to promote it to other people as well. And if you want to engage with me to go deeper with these ideas, let's talk. 
Especially now as we're all trying to navigate and lead our way through this time of great uncertainty, it's more important than ever before to be able to offer clarity and confidence so that we can really be fit for the future. I offer conference keynote presentations both online and in person, workshops and masterclasses, mentoring and coaching. And you can find out more at gihanperera.com. And while you're there, you can also find my blog, my newsletter, more episodes from this podcast and some public online presentations. And these are all designed to help you leverage the potential of your organization, your team and of course yourself as well. Stay safe and healthy and I'll see you in the future. This is Gihan Pereira. Bye for now. For show notes, past episodes, and more, visit gihanperera.com. And remember, great minds don't think alike.